0: Hi, I'm James Verdeer and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Gregor Skierman, an ecologist with the National Park Service Climate Change Response Program in Fort Collins, Colorado. He's here to talk about the resist, accept direct management paradigm, which is a method that you know park superintendents and other land managers use to make management decisions in the face of challenges like climate change. Uh, the RAD framework, as it's known, was the subject of a recent bioscience special section, uh, which I hope you'll read and enjoy, and you can find links for that in the show notes. It's all free to view, but for right now, let's go straight to the interview. All right, Dr. Skierman, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: No, thank you, James, happy to be here.
0: Okay, so we're gonna be talking about you know, ecosystem management in places like national parks, um, and you know we'll be talking about the RAD framework in particular. But before we get into that, I was hoping you could tell us just a little bit so we'll have a baseline understanding about you know, how management has been performed traditionally.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I think when, when I talk about this, what I'm really trying to convey to people is that we have a RAD framework, but it's just a tool, a very clarifying tool, to understand the great challenge, which is a change in the way management is happening. And so to focus on your question, kind of where we all come from, and it's certainly my own upbringing uh, as, as sort of a middle-aged person I come out of the late 20th century and I come out of an understanding of stationarity. It's not the idea that natural systems are static, we had that idea earlier on, but it's, it was a newer understanding, an understanding that nature has dynamics, it has change, but that generally, for the most part, that change operates within familiar bounds, whether it's the drivers of ecological conditions or the ecological conditions themselves. And so knowing the past can help you and Know what to expect and manage for in the future. Uh, that's the idea of stationarity, and that's basically the paradigm that natural resource stewardship uh, and conservation has lived within for the decades in which I've become a scientist of biology and of conservation. Um, yeah, in my own life. So, you know,
0: just to throw an example out there, if we were talking about, you know, a national park, say, you know, Rocky Mountain National Park, and. Um, we have you know, a certain assemblage of tree species there. And in the stationarity model of thinking of things, you know, we would kind of always seek to have that same basic assemblage of species and assume that that was um, what you would expect to see in that
1: spot. Exactly, Good. good example. And so let's say you're in Rocky Mountain National Park or thereabouts, and you're in the subalpine zone, and you're thinking about fire as a structuring process a natural part of the system. Turns out at that elevation, it's not a very high return interval uh, phenomenon compared with other other elevations. Uh, But recent work by my colleague, Phil Higuera, and others shows that the frequency of fire in these systems is way, 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 in the past two decades, has leapt way outside of the historical range of variability that he and colleagues have established through paleoecological techniques over 2,000 years. So you have 2,000 years of what you would call historical or natural range of variability. And then the last quarter century, uh, that what we've seen is that, that those bounds no longer hold. And so if you're asking yourself what vegetation should be here in the system today or in the future, and you understand that fire is a major driver of ecological potential, you are now outside of um, as sort of a realm where the past can guide you, literally. And, you know, my colleague Dawn Magnus, who wrote the second paper in our special section, uh, she and and colleagues, they have a quote that that, um, the viewpoint in the special section picked up that basically says, shifting from historical baselines that are generally observable, knowable, and agreed on to non-stationary conditions that are novel, uncertain, and contested. That's really what we're talking about. And, and that Rocky Mountain example is a good example. The kind of fire regime that's being contended with really demands different thinking.
0: Right. So, I mean, and it's the kind of thing where if you were trying to, you know, manage to that old model, you'd fail anyway because climate change is just, you know, thrown such a powerful spanner in the works. Um, and, and, you know, likewise in an area, like if it's a low lying area and you have saltwater encroachment, it's just going to change things and you can't, you can't get away with that old model anymore.
1: Yeah, and these different examples you're offering, they have their own unique different nuances. The seawater rise, that's a steady change, you know it's coming, you can track it decade to decade. Um, Doesn't mean it's easy, uh, but you know when that change, you can sort of predict it to a certain degree, whereas uh, these other systems like forests that are primed to change, but they're waiting for that ignition um, and that event, you can't predict when that will happen, you can just understand Uh, with good science, um, perhaps, uh, you know, sort of nature of the propensity of that change and that it's primed to change.
0: Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on, I imagine, you know, um, talking about the, you know, the different scenarios that you apply this framework to. But it occurs to me that that creates a pretty striking, you know, challenge insofar as if you're going to have a management framework, it has to be one that's willing to or able to adjust to all of those different types of scenarios. Um, and so, you've got the RAD framework, which is laid out in the special section. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it and you know how it differs from older approaches?
1: Yeah, it's sort of paradoxical because within the adaptation realm, it is actually one of the older approaches. Of course, we're talking um, a realm of thinking, a field that's about a decade, decade and a half old. So it's it's young and it's this it's this it's all different timescales, but let's say what happened is in the early 2000s, some of the leading thinkers about the challenges of the emerging Anthropocene and, and legacies of human impacts and so on, started grappling as well with climate change and the strong directionality, uh, the pervasiveness of these changes that were happening. And they started first making this point that we have some challenges with our historical paradigm. And, a co-author on, on the opening paper in our special section, David Cole and others, really led this thinking in 2007-2008. Uh, there's a, um, a a book they edited called Beyond Naturalness, which really just asked the pr- provocative question of when human influence is so pervasive and growing, uh, these um, reference points of naturalness and historical are just harder and harder to apply. They were beginning to grapple with that. And they made the point then that what we really need to help uh, move conservation resource stewardship forward is a framework that lays out the choices that is centered on manager choices, manager intention, manager action. That is simple, where the choices are discrete. You know, a whole lot of clarity. We need to be practical here. And they put out resist, accept, guide, and. You know, it was there in the mix, and the mix kept mixing of different frameworks for a number of years. And a person like me came in sort of midway in this evolution of this field. And colleagues of mine and I looked around, and we kind of picked this one back up and said, what we need to do is just maybe make guide a little stronger. We need to recognize that the kind of intervention to direct ecological trajectories could be quite forceful. And we need to acknowledge that that, that spectrum. And so we changed guide to direct. We, we messed around a little bit with accept versus accommodate. I think I'm falling into the weeds here a little bit. But we kind of gelled on resist, accept, direct about three or four years ago. And we've kind of worked with an expanding circle of, of partners on it. So that's the history. It's, it's all new compared with the 20th century paradigm. And on the other hand, within the, the field of, of uh, climate change adaptation, it's actually been an enduring idea that we've just tweaked a little bit. And now it sort of has its moment.
0: Okay, so let's go through just for the sake of definitions and, and define each of those those terms. You know, I think, uh, you know, people will see it laid out as the res- resist, accept, direct framework. Um, but what do each of those words mean in this kind of context?
1: Right. Um, it's a very simple framework. And on the other hand, like a lot of simple things, it gets complex very quickly and the nuances matter.
0: So- Should we use the boat analogy?
1: Yeah, I think the boat analogy is a good one. Let's start with that and then we'll kind of work our way into the framework. Okay, cool. Um, So, in in the opening paper of our special section, we offer a boat analogy. We worked with an artist a couple of years ago. It was a a side project in a large federal group working on this. It was us literally saying, we need to paint some pictures of what we're talking about. We need more than one approach to talk about this complex uh, challenge of Uh, transforming systems and the idea of it's difficult to go back home, so to speak. So in the boat analogy, and now I'm going to try and paint this analogy with words, which is sort of not the point in the first place, but here we go. In the boat analogy, a ship has left port, and in, in the literal picture we paint, it's sort of a happy, sort of a summer campy kind of environment. It's left port, it's out in the water, and a storm has come up, and the winds are coming much straight line from home port meaning that you can't sail back there or at least you're going to be tacking and jiving and, and difficult and so this is a change in circumstances and so the choices that the boat has are perhaps to just pull that sail down and drift with the winds uh, perhaps they may carry the boat to a, a different shore that's an acceptable place to land alternatively Uh, they can raise their sails, make use of the sails and the rudder, maybe not get home, but find a preferred alternative uh, than, than simply drifting. So instead of simply accepting change, that first choice, they're now directing change. They're working with those forces of change, but to go to a new destination. And then finally, perhaps this ship wants to expand resources and have impacts and compromises and pull out a couple of big old motors and burn some fuel and go straight upwind back to home port and that would be resisting change with different and more powerful tools again with some compromises involved relative to what they might have expected they would need to do to keep things the way they were and in that sense uh, get the get the boat back to uh, home port
0: okay so you you know i I think that gives us a good uh, you know basic understanding of you know the definition of the terms Um, Mm -hmm. How do you apply this in a a practical sense? Under what circumstances would, you know, you, if you're, you know, uh, managing an ecosystem at a, you know, a national park or whatever land, you know, when would you apply them and, and, you know, under what kinds of circumstances and how would you, you know, change and revise your thinking and approaches um, depending on, you know, what happened or, um, you know, how things were going?
1: Yeah. So now we're switching from the analogy to the reality. And so let's quickly ground ourselves in the definitions and what we're focused on. When we think about applying RAD, we recognize that what we are responding to is a trajectory, right, a trajectory of change to be slightly redundant in the ecology of a system. And it's not just A to B. It's A to somewhere. And so we focus on the trajectory. It's not just a state change. we say to ourselves, much like that boat analogy, what might we do to resist change in species, uh, abundance, um, and therefore ultimately structure, composition, ecosystem function, and from a human perspective, ecosystem service? What might we do to resist a trajectory of change in those attributes of the system? Uh, what might uh, the system do if we make a choice to allow it to respond autonomously uh, to non-stationary drivers, and then finally, you know, analogous to the to the ship with the sails up and using the rudder, how might we steer this change, this trajectory, um, away from at least least preferred potential future conditions? Um, you know, trying not to be too hubristic about what we can do there. Uh, those are the three choices. So a good example comes out of Acadia National Park in the Northeast where they are on the boundary of boreal forest to the north of them and then to the south of them uh, a northern hardwood forest system at the same time like everywhere there are lots of non-native species that are just waiting for any opportunity um, to jump in and the park is concerned because of recent experience and climate projections and including projections of uh, likely future changes in climate suitability for many of those boreal forest species, they're concerned about an an ecological gap opening up here where a a climate-related disturbance, perhaps with other aspects of global change, uh, non-native pests, for instance, knocks down those boreal forest elements, and before the northern hardwood elements can either expand in abundance on their own or some of them move from further south what they're worried about is these um, non-natives at the door which are mostly shrubs and vines literally converting a boreal forest into an undesirable uh, from the perspective of stakeholders and managers uh, sort of Eurasian thicket uh, not the rambunctious garden they want and so what they say there and the way they use rad framing is to say okay we know what happens if we accept that change, or at least we have enough confidence that we want to think about intervening, which is always something of a, of a bar, especially in the National Park Service, to make a choice to intervene, go through a process. We're disinclined to do that if we, if we can avoid doing so. So in this case, we understand what accepting looks like. We don't find it desirable. And so then you go to the question of how might we intervene? right? Where and how might we resist this change and keep conditions natural slash historical and in this landscape they recognize that not all parts of the landscape are experiencing climate change at the same rates. There are climate change refugia places where because of all kinds of sheltering let's say north north side side of a hill or a mountain is going to be cooler and not warm as fast so you find those opportunities where it's strategic to still resist and you work like heck there and you get creative and you know why you're doing it. And then other parts of the system that are more exposed or maybe at a larger scale you can't do that. Um, What you may be able to do is steer that change and what Acadia is doing is saying okay as we lose our boreal spruces or firs, what we're going to be ready to do is help uh, species like I said from the south come in and what they're doing now in preparation for those important decisions with lots of stakeholders and lots of considerations is the basic exploratory research. So they're doing the science to open up that option uh, and then go through a process of deciding. So the short version is they don't want to accept that change. They can resist in some places, but not everywhere. So they have to consider directing and, and literally managing with the flow.
0: And so could that mean something like planting, you know, northern hardwoods in Acadia?
1: Yeah and they're doing it now and let me put a huge asterisk on that they're not doing it now out on the landscape in a you know applied decision they're doing it now in the sense of common garden experiments in the park and elsewhere across the state in that case uh, with a lot of partners to basically understand um because it's not straightforward right climate change isn't just an analog to somewhere else there's there's some novelty in there too so there are real questions about Uh, which species from a state or two to the south from Massachusetts for instance uh, might actually survive uh, conditions today in terms of both germination and recruitment and so there's a lot of work going on about that the other thing of course is recognizing if certain species might behave undesirably uh, maybe do too well Um, and so we're falling a little bit into the theme of design which is again what directing is about it's about doing this strategically it's not carelessness. It's not willy-nilly. It's not opening up decisions to just about anything. It's, it's trying to be strategic and work with ultimately non-stationarity. If, if your park climatically is becoming a northern hardwoods landscape, um, then practicality demands that you start thinking about working with the ecological flows that are going to re- result from that.
0: Okay, and this is probably the closest to a curveball that I'll throw. Um, but you know, I'm curious about values. So, with stationarity, you know, we have this model. At least we're trying to go back to something that was an original state or something like that. But, you know, when we're managing for change, um, it's a little bit different because the, you know the ecosystem that you're working towards is something that someone picked. It's reflective of you know some sort of values. It's reflective of you know someone's choices. And I'm wondering about you know how do you decide the ecosystems that you know, you're you trying to manage too and those t- sorts of outcomes as well?
1: Yeah. Um, this is a huge topic, and it's one I feel good about because a lot of the work that's happened on this framework and powered these papers comes out of a group called FedNet, which is an assemblage of federal climate change adaptation and resource managers, uh, specialists, Who've been working together for the past three or four years to really hone the application of RAD and and really more like wrap their arms around the bigger challenge of managing systems facing transformation and what we did is we had social scientists in there from the beginning and so um, a lot of us use this word values and you used it a bunch of times in this thing and what the social scientists did and I sort of pulled up the um, Uh, one of the key figures from their paper which is the fourth one in our bundle led by uh, Katie Clifford. And they said to us, you guys keep using this word values but let me give you a few others. Beliefs, identity, attitudes, sense of place, faith, emotions, norms, larger political economic forces, risk perception, location, landscape change, and so on. And they said there are a lot of words here and this is a very rich topic. And when you think about values and you think about stakeholders or especially managers, they've got internal uh, constraints and they've got external constraints. And basically, much like RAD is a nice framework for thinking about uh, stewarding transforming systems, there are additional frameworks one needs to think about how to think about values. And, and we're very lucky that we've had social scientists in our group all the way along helping us um, learn, those of us who aren't social scientists, and, and generally to bring to this work kind of a rich social science perspective. And so, I would strongly encourage readers to have a look at the Clifford et al. paper, Um, and I'm just reminding myself if I can what the title is, Responding to Ecological Transformation, Mental Models, External Constraints, and Manager Decision Making. Got a whole paper on it and it's wonderful.
0: That's great. And we'll have a link to everything, you know, within the show notes so people can look up the, uh, all the articles in the special section. Um, I, I had a, a question, which is um, related, but you know, does, how does the RAD framework work with or incorporate or accommodate, um, indigenous land management, which is a topic that's been arising more and more frequently lately.
1: It's a really good topic. Um, and we've, we've had some conversations recently. Acadia national park actually had a science symposium this fall where, uh, we had some indigenous voices fairly prominently speaking about transforming systems and to some degree the RAD framework. Uh, also our opening paper in this special section uh, has, a, has a box that kind of talks about this and it, it makes a few different points that I think are really important. And the first one is that this paradigm shift and this crisis we're talking about is really a crisis of modern western resource stewardship based on modern scientific perspectives and we point out that it's not the only land stewardship caretaking approach and we acknowledge that thus far and again facts on the ground have caught up with us a little bit but at least at the time of, of this writing uh, that we had mostly been having a federal conversation about federal resource management and that uh, bringing in indigenous voices, bringing in uh, municipal voices, uh, state voices, really many other kinds of voices, NGO voices, uh, was a next step. And that we recognize everybody's confronting these same broad challenges of transforming systems outside of bounds. But the, the philosophical approaches, the cultural approaches, what change means, what accepting change means, all of this could be um, very, very different. And we certainly welcome. Um, indigenous perspectives on this and and sort of personally uh, in that Acadia engagement with indigenous colleagues I I realized heading into it that it felt more comfortable to start with the common challenge which is transforming systems and then say well those of us who come out of a Western resource management tradition of the late 20th century have been involved in a crisis and we find this Liberating, and whether it's useful beyond or it's just useful to understand what increasingly federal uh, resource management agencies and partners are starting to think about, uh, I don't know. It remains to be seen.
0: I'm wondering then, you know, how do you then, you know, kind of roll out a framework like this one? Uh, you've got the idea, you have the, you know, the concept, and um, and it's been promulgated through, of course, internal documents. But you know, how do you get people to actually start doing it and thinking this way?
1: Okay, so here, here's how this all ties together. Those of us in Adaptation grapple with this challenge at all scales. Um, and a lot of it for me and my colleagues has been at the scale up. we are working with ParkX next week. Uh, we are mostly prepared, but you never prepared enough in Adaptation because things are happening fast enough that you're just having to help move things along and, and keep up with events. And there's always more you could do. Um, so it's the press of, we've got to work with a park next week. How are we going to help them think creatively in an unbiased way about their options? And we literally grabbed Rad off a shelf and took it out there. So that's one level is you take it, you work it one park at a time and you hone your concepts. That's what we brought into the kind of publication we have now. Now the question is how you scale that up. Um, One way that I've been doing it and and partners of mine on these papers is just getting out this year in concert with uh, this special section and riding this wave and just, um, it's neither marketing nor advertised, sharing the word, right? And that's what we've been doing. And we've spoken to several thousand people in in a whole lot of webinars this year because there's an interest and this is the moment and we're happy to do that. That's sometimes the easiest way this is a good opportunity in line with that. But beyond that, and especially within the domain I come from, there's a practical question, right? The the NPS manages 80 million acres. Uh, How are we moving that management into a rad framing? And so I got a few answers for you here. Um, One of them is you seize the moment politically. And this is a moment where the Department of the Interior, perhaps differently than in recent years, is ready to think practically and realistically and forthrightly, if I might say that, about climate change and and that includes climate change adaptation. And so through some work we've done in the past year, the Department of the Interior uh, Climate Action Plan specifically calls out the resist accept, direct Framework. It's a small thing, it's one paragraph, but you don't need much at that level, that's how that works. It's there, it's legit. From that you can tear down and do the same thing on Let's say the Fish and Wildlife Service Climate Change and Refuges page, uh, which you can Google and you'll find it's uh, got a picture of a polar bear and it's heavily RAD based. It basically threads it through and explains what that looks like. Uh, we in the NPS have a RAD page, got, got a lot of the same information, trying to get the word out. Most practically, though, what matters is training and changing that management culture. And so What we've done is, at the same time we've been working on these publications, we've been working with our partners, particularly the National Wildlife Federation, Bruce Stein and Patty Glick. And we have unified RAD with Climate Smart Adaptation, which is our method of uh, adaptation for natural and cultural resources. Um, And that's a tool that came out in 2014. So at about the time we started honing RAD and applying it, we had Sort of received or participated in the formulation of this this general approach, sort of an adaptive management approach, called climate smart. Uh, so we've worked with the National Wildlife Federation to bring scenario planning, climate smart, and RAD together in a new guide that came out this spring called Planning for a Changing Climate. That's also fairly Googleable. NPS Planning for a Changing Climate. We abbreviate it as P4CC, and that's kind of like the grand unifying theory of of climate change adaptation particularly for natural resources for us and we're really excited about it it it, it brings together several tools we're using and says here's how they reconcile and we're building training around that right now that is the next step having published out this material is to um, build training and the hunger for it across the NPS um, planning core and management core is really really high I think one of the biggest things personally for me is different about the moment today and when I started working for the Park Service eight and a half years ago is that you don't have to make the case anymore uh, to managers that climate change is a thing and they need to think about it. That, that landscape has changed and it's profound. So we've got a different demand than we had a few years ago and in that time in between we've been using our, um, our engagements with our early adopters to develop these tools and hone them. And we feel really excited about the way things have progressed because scaling up is always a challenge, but we actually have the concepts ready and we've test driven them a little bit. And that feels really good.
0: Yeah. And that, and, you know, and I think that excitement is something that, you know, I, I in particular note, I think it's, there's a tendency when, when we look at um, issues like climate change to just, to feel as though, you know, one is doomed, um, you know, simply because the scope of change and is so great and um, sense of loss that one, you know, experiences when thinking about, you know, certain familiar, you know, landscapes and ecosystems is, is so great. But this, this seems to offer a way to envision the future that's, you know, that's one that is rich as well and also gratifying.
1: You know, I had a slide in one of my slide decks where I just say, RAD will set you free. Right. And, and I'm not just joking around. I really think it's liberating. And I think uh, Jack Williams' viewpoint piece in this special section does a nice job right in the in the final paragraph or two of talking about this. And I found it really moving. And I'm not going to quote it. I don't have it right away. But I'll just encourage people to read the viewpoint piece. I just... I thought it was wonderful, um, and, and again, it feels good to to hear other people get it, resonate what you're thinking, and then take it to the next level. That's what climate change adaptation is right now. It's a really uh, creative uh, realm. I'll give you one example that I think is pretty heartening. The, the landscape around Los Alamos, New Mexico, that's Bandelier National Monument, and so on, is a it's a difficult landscape. It's had these fires that we've heard about for since the late 90s. Um, these really large fires, one of them burned hundred thousand acres, burned hotter than ever before, Right, scorched the ground to where it won't even absorb water, all that kind of stuff. Not everywhere. And so you have a heterogeneous landscape of places that have been hammered and aren't coming back the way they used to. Uh, as a consequence of that, you've got these ahistorical floods scouring out your, your, your waterways. Uh, having all kinds of impacts, it's a tough place. And yet the managers in that landscape are some of the most inspiring ones in in our whole RAD universe. In terms of the the diverse partnership there, it's dozens of Pueblos, um, all kinds of federal agencies, um, state agencies, uh, private actors, working together, NGOs working together in that landscape. And what they're doing is they're learning how to accept change to a certain degree in some of those transformed landscapes, but they're also learning how to resist st- strategically and often really creatively, and often because of human values. So, for instance, a lot of Douglas fir got, got um, taken out, and they're replanting it, but not everywhere, because climate projections su- suggest that's unwise, but they're finding the places where it is wise, where it is strategic, and they're resisting by replanting there Because among other things, that's a culturally important being, a culturally important species in that landscape. So there is a reason to work hard on resistance and think about it in that way. Also very creatively with resistance in that landscape is that they took advantage of these scouring floods that literally removed the biota uh, from those those water courses. And they said, well, okay, we just got rid of all our non-native fishes we can now restore a native fish uh, assemblage that we haven't had in several generations. And with, again, some very creative, but deliberate and often very intensive resistance, maybe we can prevent these systems from having those floods again um, because of the way we're managing the upslopes. And just to kind of round things out there, when they're planting some of those other elements, their pinyon, juniper, um, their lodgepole, et cetera, they're planting those at the margins, they call them, which is just sort of a casual way of saying we're planting them at the uphill end of their historical distributions. When we put these, these trees back on the landscape, we're moving them up, right? We're moving those growth zones up. And so it, in any one particular acre, uh, that's a transformation, right? That's a that's that's change being directed. They're not going back to what used to grow there. They're going forward to what can grow there and what can therefore right protect the watershed.
0: Yeah, this sounds like a very empowering way of, you know, managing landscapes for climate change. Um, and I think it also gives us the rare opportunity to close out a conversation in which we talked about climate change on a positive and upbeat note. Um, so, Dr. Skierman, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: You're very welcome, James. Stay rad.